Hi there, we're kind of binge watching this Mr. Ballin Shorts on YouTube, Scary Stories. At 2.28 in the morning, Henry's wife, Corrine, looked at her phone and she saw she had a missed call and a voicemail from Henry. She opens it up and she listens to it and she's horrified at what she hears. On the voicemail, Henry sounds incredibly distressed. He's yelling that he's been shot and it sounds like he's in pain. And then, in the background, you hear this really intense growling sound. It's pretty easy to distinguish. This is what was made publicly available. And the police are thinking, you know what, it's a grown man. He went out drinking with his friends. He's bound to sober up and Stupid turn up. And a year later, three camp counselors would actually find him. Three camp counselors decided to go to a very hard-to-access area that had been searched previously, but they felt like it was the one spot that needed a little bit more attention. And it was five kilometers west of the camp and almost 800 yards up a fairly steep incline. This is a hard-to-access area. But they climbed their way up there, and sure enough, even though this area had been searched before, they found Bobby's hearing aid, bits of his clothing, and some of his bones. They didn't find any more of his remains, and no one knows what actually happened to him. But it really makes you wonder, what happened after the camp counselor turned his back on Bobby? It's as if someone scooped him up and flew him away. And even if he had intentionally run away, it would have been very difficult for a 10-year-old to get to that particular location where he was found. And to what end? Why would he have wanted to get up? Check his bones to see if uh, they're like, um, you know bite marks or, or uh, year later something. three camp counselors would act and so he says look you know there's a new product that came online that's quite expensive but since you're a man of means maybe it's something you want to consider it's called Radithor and it's supposed to dull aches and pains and it's supposed to give you this huge boost of energy he went back to his house and as prescribed he drank a very small spoonful of this liquid and right away he felt the surge of energy the pain in his arm started to fade every day he felt better and better and better not just the pain in his arm but overall he felt happier he felt fitter he felt alive so he began taking more and more of this tonic well beyond what Shit. was prescribed to the point where he was drinking three full bottles of radithor every single day and so for years he did this and it was all going great until his jaw fell off. Oh my God. Literally, in 1931, one day, his lower jaw just separated from Holy his skull shit. and went slack. And so the reason oh this happened God. was because Radithor was actually just radioactive water. So he says, look, you know, there's a new product that came oh online God. that's quite expensive, but Weird. since you're a man of means, maybe it's something you want to consider. It's called Radithor, and it's... The official cause of death was baffling. Carl, apparently was squeezed to death to the point where his rib broke and punctured his lung. So the theory became, Carl must have been out here by himself. He encountered a black bear. He fired one shot at the black bear. Thinking it was down, he walked over to check, and the bear attacked him and squeezed him and killed him. The end. If Carl encountered a black bear and fired one shot into the animal based on the one found shell casing, that one shot is not going to be enough to put that animal down. Carl 
being a hunter, he would know that, and he would want to keep some distance with his weapon up aimed at the animal in case he needed to fire again. But even if all of that happened, that Carl, unarmed, approached this bear, thinking it was dead, but the bear's not dead, he's lying in wait, he leaps up and attacks Carl. Even if that happened, black bears don't squeeze people to death. They might scratch you and bite you and rip you to pieces. Carl only had light scratching on his wrists and on his hands. He did not have any signs of a traditional bear attack. The official cause of death was baffling. Carl, and he's getting closer and closer, and he gets to a place where he can just barely see this crow. It's in a clearing. There is this large tree stump right in the middle of the clearing, and the crow is just incessantly screeching. And from this hunter's perspective, he can see the crow, and he's kind of staring at it. And as the hunter is looking at this crow, the crow suddenly turns and looks directly at the hunter, and it recognizes the hunter can see the crow, and the crow stops screeching. And is just staring directly at the hunter. And this hunter would say he felt so unsettled by the sudden behavior of the crow. The bird continued to stare silently at the hunter to the point where the hunter felt compelled to walk out of the vegetation into the clearing to kind of confront the crow. And the hunter's standing in the clearing and he looks at the crow and the crow suddenly looks straight down. The hunter follows the crow's gaze down to the ground and he sees at the base of the tree is a human skull. And the whole situation is so terrifying to this hunter that he just makes a note of where he is and he runs. And he's getting closer and closer and he gets to a place where he can just barely see this crow. It's in a clearing. There is this large tree stump right in the middle of the clearing and the crow, it wasn't long before she started to hear audible sounds coming from what she, and he's getting closer and closer and he gets to a place where he can just crow? barely see this crow. It's in a clearing. There is this large tree stump right in the middle of the clearing. And the crow is just incessantly screeching. And it wasn't long before she started to hear audible sounds coming from what she believed to be this person that was following her. And she would turn around and there'd be no one there. And then she started to walk, you know, trying to listen as she's walking. And she would hear footsteps far away from her. And she'd turn and there'd be nobody there. But she was certain someone was following her someone was stalking her but after several hours when eloise did not show up her friend left the trail and contacted authorities and filed a missing person report two days after the search was terminated so 23 days after eloise had initially set off for her trek through the appalachian trail a hunter that was out in the middle of nowhere near the appalachian trail discovers eloise perched up against a tree she's totally emaciated she's dehydrated she's delirious but she's alive she would detail in multiple interviews and in her official statement that she had been chased for the past almost three weeks in the middle of the woods and she doesn't know who it was or why they were chasing her it wasn't long before she started to hear audible sounds coming from what she but it turns out the okay. fail point to this mission was almost certainly not going to be Komarov or Gagarin if he ended up going instead of Komarov it was going to be the spaceship itself Gagarin along with a host of engineers did a full-blown inspection of the Soyuz and found 203 significant structural problems and they all recommended postponement of this mission but their recommendation was ignored because again this mission was so politically important to the Soviet Union that they were effectively ready to risk their astronauts to make it happen so sure enough Komarov gets in the Soyuz on launch day he takes off and the problems began almost immediately and so sure enough on April 24th around 7 a.m. Komarov's craft smashes into the ground killing Komarov and when they open it up it's clear what happened to him he didn't die on impact 
he basically burned alive inside of this capsule as it was careening down towards the Earth. And so all that's left of him is this charred pile. But it turns out the fail point for this mission was almost certainly not going to be Komarov or Gagarin if he ended up going instead of Komarov. It was going to be the spaceship itself. Gagarin, along with a host of engineers, did a full-blown inspection, of, and then he went inside and found this huge dumpster. And he would have quickly realized... Are you still there? Oh yes, you are. By the way, shout out to KANP Student Radio at the University of Arizona on KPYT Pasquayaki Tribal Radio. All for you. And we are watching Scary Stories with McFallen Shorts on YouTube. And he went inside and found this huge dumpster. And he would have quickly realized the only way to look into the dumpster, and so to go looking for his phone, was to look down into this tunnel. There was a ladder nearby, so he grabbed it and he propped it up against the side of the dumpster. And as he was looking, either some trash from the ceiling fell down and struck him, causing him to lose his balance, or he just slipped somehow. But either way, he lost his balance and he tumbled into the tunnel, down into the dumpster. This was not some ordinary dumpster. This was a trash compactor. And so he only had one direction he could go, which was to retreat to the far side of the dumpster. Once he got over there, there was nowhere for him to go. And so he was forced to just wait as this hydraulic press slowly moved across until it finally reached him and crushed him. And so by the time the police actually looked down, they saw a part of Roger's body and immediately they could tell there was nothing they could do. Roger was definitely deceased. And then he went inside and the first three boys climbed into the first sled and pushed off. At first, it was going exactly to plan. It was fun. They were going fast. It was exhilarating. But then disaster struck. Unlike the previous weekend, this night, this weekend, there was a metal chain that had been strung across one of the sections towards the bottom of the luge track. It was there to keep a particular section of the track in place. And so these boys, as they come flying around the corner, they don't see it, and they strike this chain at full speed. Now, this chain was at neck height, and so when it hit them, it instantly decapitated and killed one of the boys. It was a 17-year-old named Evan Caldwell. And so he dies immediately and the other two are thrown oh from the sled and landed unconscious. The first three boys, okay. around 10 p.m., the concert ends, at which point Christina comes back out from behind stage and went right out into the crowd and began meeting her fans and hugging them and signing autographs and taking pictures. A man who was a fan of Christina's walked down from the back of the venue and kind of awkwardly gestured that he kind of wanted to get a hug. And Christina saw that, and so she smiled, and she walked up to him. And when she got just a couple of feet away from him, he drew a pistol, and he fired four shots into her head and into her body. Oh and then God. he stood up, and he kind of walked backwards until he was literally up against this wall, looking at the sea of people that are totally horrified. And then the shooter just raises the gun, puts it to his head, and pulls the trigger. There were people in the audience who were medically trained who rushed over to Christina, and they began performing CPR on her, but there really wasn't anything anyone could do. She would die that night at the hospital. Around 10 p.m., the concert ends, at which point Christina comes back out from behind stage and went right out into the crowd and began meeting her fans and hugging them. Oh, I forgot the fact that her brother tackles the guy almost instantly after the shooting and tries to restrain him. That had to be a shocking situation for everyone. A sad one, too. It was interesting to watch a well-told story. Great video. I remember when this happened, sparked a huge topic about fans and artists and security. 
Christina's brother actually jumped on the guy and wrestled him and slammed him and held him against the wall, which saved many other people there from being shot as well. What a fucking douche, canoe. Shit. Man. She was my favorite YouTuber. Who is this person? And her music was amazing. When I saw the news that she died, I was shocked. I remember when this happened. So terrible sad. He should have got street judges justice, but glad he took care of it himself. I was a fan of Grimmy. Before she was known and this news devastated me. Still hard to listen to her music without getting emotional. Grimmy. Christina Grimmy. Christina Grimmy. She's on The Voice, apparently. Subscribe. Oh my god. YouTube mix. Let's check it out. Holy shit. This is why I stopped using laundry towels. They waste water and pollute the environment with microplastics.
3.94 million subscribers. I came here from Mr. Ballin Shorts on YouTube, comma, such a tragic loss, exclamation point. These are beautiful lyrics, sad face. Are you still there, man? So they're just filming and laughing and kind of. Yes, you are. Say hi there. So they're just filming and laughing and kind of thinking this is so funny. And then Dedenko's husband actually leaps through the cloud into the water and kind of disappears below. And then shortly after that, two other partygoers would also leap into the pool. One of the main reasons dry ice is considered to be so hazardous, if handled inappropriately, is because dry ice emits that carbon dioxide gas, which at high concentrations will displace oxygen. The Denko's husband and the other two people who leapt into the pool, when they came back to the surface, they breathed in thinking they would be breathing in oxygen, but instead they breathed in an entire lungful of carbon dioxide. They breathed in this poisonous gas, which caused two of them to immediately immediately pass out and then just die, while the third, Dedenko's husband, he managed to stay conscious enough that he was able to climb barely out of the pool, and he tried to get to the door, but he couldn't get out in time. Eventually, he was pulled out and rushed to the hospital, but he would later die. So they're just filming and laughing and kind of thinking this is so funny, and then Dedenko's husband actually leaps through the cloud into... She still hadn't seen any deer, and she was starting to get bored, so she decided she would take a selfie. She picked up her Blackberry, she took the selfie, and as soon as she was done, she became aware that the forest had suddenly gone completely quiet. No squirrels, birds, or crickets, just complete silence. She immediately became aware of something about 20 feet away in the tree that was right across from her and she said it was the most unusual and terrifying thing she had ever seen. Moving left to right through the branches was this thing that she described as like a visual distortion. This one looked like it was alive, like it had mass, like it was a a see-through person that had been wrapped in saran wrap. She is horrified, but she knows she wants to document it, so she grabs her phone and she raises it up and she takes a picture on her Blackberry. When she looked at it, it looked like a blurry mess. And so she thought, I blew it, I put my hand over it, or my hair got in the way of it. But at the same time, she's thinking to herself, my hair didn't get in the way of it. And I very clearly held it out in front of me and know that I was looking at my phone when I took it and I had a clear shot of this thing. She still hadn't seen any deer and she was starting to get bored, so she decided she would take a selfie. She picked up her Blackberry, she took the selfie, and as soon as she was done, she became aware that the forest had suddenly gone completely quiet. No more squirrels, no more birds, no more crickets, just complete 
silence. She immediately became aware of something about 20 feet away in the tree that was right across from her. And she said it was the most unusual and terrifying thing she had ever seen. Moving left to right through the branches was this thing. This time, when they stopped to listen to confirm it was a bear, the sound they heard next was something they had never heard before. And it was so frightening, they almost fell over each other running to get inside of the shelter. It was like a whooping sound you would expect from an ape, except instead of a series of whoops like you would expect from an ape, it was one loud whoop and then silence, and then another creature somewhere else made a responding whoop that sounded different than the first. There was at least two creatures that were basically speaking to each other out in the forest out of view. Ron would say, as these creatures were howling and whooping at each other out in the forest, the men were huddled around inside of the shelter looking at each other like, what is that? Has anybody heard that sound before? And nobody knew what it was. when they stopped to listen to confirm it was a bear the sound they heard next was something they had never heard before and it was so frightening they almost fell over each other running by 11:30 that night gia's parents were starting to get very concerned that they hadn't heard from their daughter and that she hadn't come home yet so this huge search is launched to go find gia hundreds of volunteers they've all these professional search and rescue people out there they have helicopters overhead and almost immediately within a few hours of the search being launched they find her car on highway two seven days into this huge search where nothing has been turned up they have this huge find they find in one area her jacket her shoes her phone her journal and her bible all in one area but she was nowhere to be found and on the ninth day from when she had gone missing they found her she was alive when they approached her she was very startled to see people coming near her she clearly was not expecting to be found she was also more or less incoherent she believed she'd only been out for maybe three days and just had gotten lost but they told her she had been gone for nine days by 11:30 that night gia's parents were starting to get very concerned that they hadn't heard from their daughter and that she hadn't come home yet so this huge search is launched to go find gia hundreds of volunteers they've all these professional search and rescue people out there see what people say that happens to me every morning i wake up at 3 a.m and then lay for the only fun it's really been just 10 minutes i remember some of the things that happened happened to me and my friends and try to understand it better instead of question survival mode listen to all these stories of people getting lost um Maybe she was drugged. As his friend is driving him out to Crater Lake, Charles says to him, kind of jokingly, yeah, if you don't hear from me in a couple of days, file a missing person report. Sure enough, a couple days later, when Charles doesn't show up, 
that friend does file a missing person report, and an extensive search is conducted at Crater Lake to find Charles. But a year later, a couple of backpackers were hiking the area around Crater Lake, and they get lost, and they discover a backpack. In the backpack, they found a strange-looking Volkswagen key. Anyone that knew Charles McCullough knew that he had this strange key. So investigators went out and started looking in the area that this backpack was found. Um, which was 12 miles off the trailhead. Near the backpack, they find what remained of Charles McCullough. There was no jacket, there was no upper portion of his skeleton. 12 feet away, they find a portion of his skull. And that is the last thing they find of Charles McCullough. When he went missing, there had been approximately 5 to 7 feet of snow that had dumped in the area. So how did he move 12 miles off the trailhead in 7 feet of snow? As his friend is driving him out to Crater Lake, Charles says to him, kind of jokingly, Yeah, if you don't hear from me in a couple of days, file a missing person report. Sure enough, a couple of days later, when Charles doesn't show up, that friend does file a missing person uh, report, and an extensive search is conducted. Let's see what the comments say. Strange circumstances to see Mr. Bullard not wearing flannel. Appreciate it, Mr. Bullard fits long story than the 60 second video. Longest since floodwaters when the snow melted. If his remains were frozen, care about floodwaters, they could have been frozen. Melted. Okay. Sounds like, uh, sounds like animal. The northern end of New Zealand's South Island is a chaos of bays and sounds, and within this intricate coastline lies a narrow stretch of water called the French Pass, and it has a deadly secret. The French Pass is home to some of the world's most deadly voices, which are exactly like the swirling tubes of water going down your drain after a bath, but these are just much larger and will kill you. Now, these French Pass whirlpools are only really dangerous when the tides are actively changing, because during that time, a current rips through the waterway that increases the speed and violence of the whirlpool. While sailing through the pass is certainly hazardous, it's nothing compared to the risks of scuba diving through the pass. If a scuba diver mistimes the tides and gets sucked into a whirlpool, they won't get dragged over the rocks. They'll get pulled straight down to the bottom where they'll be funneled into these ultra-deep holes that line the seafloor. The deepest of these holes is called Jacob's Hole and it goes down over 100 meters. The northern end of New Zealand's South Island is a chaos of bays, and they kept her in their views. They would walk a little ways and turn, and she'd be right there, and at some point when they turned, she wasn't there. And so the grandparents immediately run back up, and they're looking around for Haley, thinking she probably darted behind a tree to hide. And so they're kind of looking for her, they're not that worried yet, they start yelling for her, saying, come on, we 
do got to leave. You got to come out. We got to go. But there was no word from Haley. It was just silence and she was just totally gone. The largest search and rescue mission in the history of Arkansas was launched for Haley Zega. It included hundreds of searchers on the ground, including eight dog teams and helicopters overhead. There were firefighters. The National Guard was involved. But after two days, despite this incredible search, really no progress had been made. But 51 hours into the ordeal, there were two searchers well outside of the primary search area. They spotted her. She was sitting next to this brook with her feet dangling in the water. And when she saw them, she kind of waved and they said, are you Haley Zega? And she said, yeah. And she had a couple of scratches on her arm and on her face, but overall she seemed okay. They kept her in their view. So they would walk a little ways and turn and she'd be right. The two women told their families they would be back in Boise, Idaho These by two the 21st. Died mysteriously. But when the 21st came and they were not home, their families were suspicious. Finally, on the morning of the 23rd, when no one knew where they were, they reached out to the authorities. Within 24 hours of finding the truck, they would find Amy's body. And her body was located way off of the main trail. On October 23rd, so 28 days after Amy was found, Joe's body was discovered as well, and she was lying one mile away from where Amy had been found in a similarly inaccessible part of the park. Although authorities have ruled out foul play, this was deemed an accident, it does seem like if there was ever a place to commit an attack, it would be this particular park, because underneath the park is 1,100 miles of lava tubes that connect to each other all through the park, and there's hundreds of caves, many of which have not been found or explored, that it would be pretty straightforward to attack someone and then go underground and not be found. The two women told their families they would be back in Boise, Idaho by the 21st, but when the 21st, the police asked them the question that everybody was thinking, how did you get where you were found? And Larry, the oldest of the group, he was seven years old, he said, you know, they were playing around the picnic area and they went just barely into the tree line when all of a sudden a bear came out from behind a tree and began chasing them. And the three of them ran three and a half miles up a mountain to find this log, which they jumped inside of, and they hid inside of this log from this bear. And in addition to this bear that was apparently walking around the area looking for them, Larry said they were especially scared of the gorilla that was walking around the area looking for them as well. Now, it's easy to discount Larry gorilla. and the kid's story because you could say, okay, well, the gorilla they saw was actually just a searcher looking for them. Except there was no one in that area looking for the kids near that log until right before they were found. It was kind of like a last-ditch effort to push outside the boundaries of the main search area. It was just kind of a miracle they actually located them. The police asked them the question that everybody was thinking, how did you get where you were found? And Larry, the old, all of the hunters at the Ritchie Outfitters camp that she was working in, left for a three-day hunting trip. They said bye to her and bye to her dog Ace, and they were gone. She was the only person at the camp. The following day, they got a very strange radio transmission from Connie. They couldn't understand what she was saying. They couldn't tell if she was mumbling or if there was something wrong. When no one could understand what she was saying, they ultimately said, okay, I'm sure she's fine. And so a couple days go by, and on October 5th, the hunting party returns to the cabin, and Connie's gone, as well as her dog Ace. They're both gone. A very intense search was launched that included the National Guard, the Air Force, helicopters, dog teams. They couldn't find her or her dog. Three weeks later, Ace, her dog, would show up 15 miles away from where they had gone missing. The dog was emaciated, but was okay, and they tried to get the dog to help them find Connie, but to no avail. To this day, we have no idea where Connie went, why she left the camp to begin with. All of the hunters at the Ritchie Outfitters camp that she was working in 
left for a three-day hunting trip. They said bye to her and bye to her. He begins squeezing the trigger, and at the same time, he really pushes with all that extra leverage into the ceiling. And as he does that, he feels the drill starting to go into the wood. But at the same time, he's pushing so hard that he's not realizing he's pushing down with his feet at a bit of an angle. And at some point, he pushes too hard, and he causes the ladder to spill out from underneath him. Ron instinctively tried to throw the drill away from him, but he wasn't able to throw the drill far enough away from him and even worse the drill when it hit the ground basically right underneath him it landed on its back with the drill bit Shit. pointing straight up into the air oh and so when God. he fell down face first his right eye socket landed directly oh on the drill God. And so this 18 inch long, one and a half inch in diameter oh drill God. bit impales his head, goes right through his eyeball, Holy goes through shit. his skull and punctures out the back of his begins squeezing the trigger at the same time he, he really pushed in 1910 miners drilling inside of the nika cave in chihuahua mexico punctured through the ground and discovered this flooded cavern after pumping the water out and stepping inside of this cavern they were amazed to see these massive gypsum crystals that had formed on the walls and the ceiling all over this cave Although the crystals were beautiful, they were far less valuable than what these miners were after, which was silver. So instead of trying to, you know, mine out these crystals, they told the locals in the area that they had found this cave and that they really ought to come down here and protect it because it's this amazing natural wonder. And so for the next hundred years, the locals in Chihuahua, Mexico, basically kept this cave that they nicknamed the Cave of Swords under lock and key so that no one would go in there and destroy these amazing crystals. In 1910, miners drilling inside of the Nika Cave in Chihuahua, Mexico, punctured through the ground Chihuahua. and discovered this flooded cavern. After 40 days after he had gone missing, his body was found in the Ohio River 10 miles away from where he had been missing. And the general theory became when he was walking home, after that CCTV camera picked him up, he must have stopped by the water to relieve himself, fell in. The water was so cold at the time that he would have gone into shock and then basically and then he drifted. 10 miles to this location but there's a couple big issues with that number one in order to get from where he went missing to where he wound up he would have had to go through this dam and the dam is this very violent section of water where if a body were to go through there it would get ripped to pieces but when they found his body it was clear he had not gone through a dam when his toxicology report came back he had alcohol in his system as well as a high level of ghb which is a very powerful sedative. And like you'll see in many of these cases, he had no water in his lungs, but this was ruled an accidental drought. 40 days after he had gone missing, his body was found in the Ohio River 10 miles away from where he had been missing. And the general theory became when he was walking home after that CCTV camera picked him up, he must have stopped by the water to relieve himself, fell in, the water was so cold. That, the that night, Ben would have this vivid, horrible nightmare where he heard Mark screaming for help, yelling for Ben to come save him as he's being dragged off the trail into the forest. And it scared him so much that Ben woke up and he looks down the trail to where Mark is and he can see Mark's backpack is sitting right on the trail. And so he thinks, oh, Mark's still there. The next morning when the sun comes up, Ben gets up again and the first thing he does is he looks over at Mark and he sees the pack, but he realizes that Mark is not there. It's just the backpack. And so Ben jumps up, and yells for Mark, he doesn't get a response, he's looking around thinking he's got to be around here, but he's not. And that's when it dawns on Ben that that dream he had the night before, that might have been real. And 
he has this sinking feeling that something horrible has happened to Mark and that he didn't save him. On the ninth day of the search, Mark's body was found. It was located three miles down the hill from where he and Ben had been sleeping up on that trail. At night, Ben would have this vivid, horrible nightmare where he heard Mark screaming for help, yelling for Ben to come save him as he's being dragged off the trail into the forest. And it scared him so much that Ben woke up and he looks down the trail to where Mark is. It's either a bear or a fucking... Never slip on a trail that's like the fast food drive through for, for predators. He would have to live with so much gold I feel bad for him. My guess is he was asleep and hurt his buddy squirmed in his unconscious condition to try to wake him up. It's disturbing that I've lived long periods of time going on adventures by myself constantly in all these places where horrible things happen to poop people off the how did it stay away from me? I've had that before when you wake up to chaos and it seems it's still a dream. Thankfully it wasn't so dire a situation. That's terrifying. This complete episode is terrifying. I'm glad John's going by going back to his four one one stories, which would make many In the 1930s, that night, Ben would have... In the 1930s, notorious dictator Joseph Stalin began deporting people that he viewed as threats to the regime. The worst fate of anybody deported to Siberia has to be the roughly 7,000 people that were sent to Nazino Island off the western side of Siberia. As the survivors disembark onto this snowy island, they see immediately that there's nothing on it. It's this tiny little island. There's no shelter. There's no food. There's no tools. There's no way to make shelter. They're just totally stranded. Their Soviet guards had promised them a ration of flour, but for the first four days, they refused to give it to them, and another 295 people died. And so by the time the guards actually took their boats into shore to give the flour to these people, they were starving to death, and they rushed the boats to try to steal the flour, and the guards began shooting at them, took the flour, and went back out to the water. Almost immediately, cannibalism became a thing, and there were these roving gangs of people who would just go around and murder the weak and eat them. In the 1930s, notorious dictator Joseph Stalin began deporting people that he viewed as threats to the regime. The 
worst fate that anybody, all they had to do was pass through the far like marathon section, which is a 900-foot tunnel that is only 10 inches high, 2 feet wide, and you have to wriggle through on your stomach with your face pressed against a stream that runs through it. Someone must have noticed a distant rumbling sound and said, hey, what is that? And as they sat there listening, trying to discern what the sound was, it must have dawned on them that their worst nightmare was about to come true. That was the sound of surging water. This tunnel is about to flood. The water came rushing in as they're all pinned inside of the far marathon tunnel and their face is already up against the river and now this river is surging with water. The leader of the group, the guy literally in the front, he managed to get all the way through the far marathon tunnel. There was a small fissure in the rocks. There was an air pocket and he managed to get his head up into the space right as the water in the far marathon cave completely submerged. Ultimately, there was only enough room for one person. And so as the water levels filled the room he was in up to his neck, everyone below John drowned. All they had to do was pass through the far marathon. Two and a half hours later, his Why radio crackled again. This time, it was Peljour and the others saying they had made it. They were standing on the summit of Mount Everest. The men had not just set a record for India. They had brought immeasurable honor to their country. The news sparked a huge celebration down in the base camp, but the party atmosphere would not last long. Shortly after the victory call, the weather turned from bad to horrible. What would later be known as the blizzard of 1996 had arrived in full fury, and by midnight that night, no one had heard from Pal Joel or the other two people he was with. And just a couple of days later, rescue climbers would confirm all three men had died. But Pal Joel is not the only dead body on Mount Everest. There are over 200 other dead climbers littering the slopes of the world's highest peak. It's just too dangerous and too expensive to try to get them down, and so they stay wherever they died. Which means if you climb Mount Everest, you will literally be climbing over dead bodies on your way to the summit. Two and a half hours later, his radio crackled again, and this time it was Peljour and the others saying they had made it. They were standing on the summit of Mount Everest. The men had not just set a record for India. They had brought immeasurable honor to their country. The news sparked a huge celebration down in the base camp, but the party atmosphere would not last long. Shortly after the victory call, the weather turned from bad to horrible. What would later be known as the blizzard of 1996 had arrived in full fury, and by midnight that night, no one had heard from Pal Joel or the other two people he was with. And just a couple of days later, rescue climbers would confirm all three men had died. But Pal Joel is not the only dead body on Mount Everest. There are over 200. Ben turns to look at him, gives him a nod, thank you, and he, on his own, swims this into one of, hundreds. if not the single most dangerous underwater <laughs> caves in the whole world. It's called Vortex Spring Cave. From the locked gate, this cave extends another 1,600 feet and goes down to a depth of 310 feet. The majority of this section of the cave is mapped. But there are sections that are not fully explored because they're so narrow where you have to literally take off your gear, wriggle through a hole, pull your gear through and put it back on. All the while, you're barely holding onto your mouthpiece. And so really, the full extent of this section of the cave is not known. While we don't know exactly what Ben did when he went through that gate and entered into this extremely dangerous cave, we do know that he didn't come out again. And after a couple of days and no one had seen him, they launched this massive search for him, and they combed as much as they could of inside of that cave, but there were sections that they were just not prepared to go search. And so he was never recovered. Ben turns to look at him, gives him a nod, thank you, and he... This explorer made a... The camera was found in one of the scariest places on Earth.
why there's I'm on my way I'm making it okay we're back with uh, mr. mr. Um, ballin shorts scary movies this cave has killed hundreds of people. and turns to look at him gives him a nod thank you and, yeah, and at some point he kind of trips and drops his camera this and explorer it, made a terrifying discovery camera comes to rest in this puddle looking right up against the wall so you don't have a clear view of where this guy is or what's going on and all you hear is his panicked breathing and his rapid footsteps as he continues to run down the hallway and eventually just disappears and it's totally silent and at some point the camera runs out of batteries and it turns off Ten years later, a group of urban explorers would find this man's camera where he had dropped it ten years earlier, in one of the scariest places on Earth. Hundreds of feet below the streets of Paris, France, lies one of the world's largest mass graves. It's known as the Paris Catacombs, and it's about 200 miles of intricate passageways that loop all over the city of Paris, where hmm. over six million people have been buried. At some point, he kind of trips and drops his camera, and the camera comes to rest in this puddle, looking right up against the wall. So you don't have a clear view of where this guy is or what's going on, and all you hear is his panicked breathing and his rapid footsteps as he continues to run down the hallway and eventually just disappears, and it's totally silent. And at some point, the camera oh. runs out of batteries, and it turns off. Ten years later, a group of gentlemen just says, you come to my house.
Disappearing cabin in the woods. I don't get it. So David leaned over the wall and began filming Jacob as he swirled around this whirlpool and his horse mask making neighing sounds. And at some point Jacob stopped and he swam away from the whirlpool. But you could see the pull of the whirlpool was very strong because even with flippers on, Jacob really struggled to swim away from this whirlpool. For the next 10 or 15 minutes, David and Jacob kind of joked back and forth about the strength of the whirlpool and Jacob would put his mask back down and swirl around inside of the whirlpool then get out again and then towards the end of the video jacob yells up to david that he only has one more thing in mind that he wants to do with the whirlpool he wants to dive down below and oh film it God. from underneath and so david's up on the top watching jacob he's very familiar with jacob he knows he does things like this but after a couple of minutes when he doesn't re-emerge david gets scared and starts yelling for him and when he still doesn't come up david turns and runs to the other side of the quay wall and looks over that railing towards the pool side he saw jacob down below he was lying face down in the water so david ran down and waited out to him but it was already too late jacob had drowned so david leaned over the wall and began filming jacob as he swirled around this whirlpool and with a horse mask head. Sounds. and at some point jacob after they got off the ride the friends were kind of talking about how much fun it was and james said to them hey i lost my cell phone and wallet will you guys come with me while i go look for them and so the friends agreed they left the raptor station and they walked down the paved path until they were in front of this fence that said no trespassing and so james gets up to the fence and he's looking inside of this fenced in area and he sees right in the middle of this restricted area is his phone and his wallet and before james's friends could tell him not to do this he had climbed over the fence and entered into this restricted area he ran over to his phone and his wallet he picked it up and then when he stood back up again the next wave of raptor riders came blazing through the area and the underside the steel underside of the ride hit james right in the back of the head never saw it coming and so medical workers they rush over they hop over the fence they get to james but it was too late he was pronounced dead at the scene after they got oh, off yeah, the ride the friends were kind of talking about yeah, how much fun it was and james said to them hey i lost my about five minutes later ian came over the radio and said hey it's really hot the manager came back and said don't worry it's supposed to be a little warm in there but it's nothing that can hurt you and then a couple of seconds later, Ian comes back over the radio and says, no, it's really hot in here. It is unbearably hot in here. And so one of the managers ran over and checked the temperature gauge, which unbelievably no one had done to that point. And the temperature at the center of the oven was reading over 200 degrees Fahrenheit. It was hot enough to boil water in the center of this oven. And unfortunately, there was nowhere for Ian or David to go. The belt could not go in reverse, and the fastest it could move is 17 minutes start to finish so agonizingly slow by the time they finally pulled off big pieces of the oven ian had already made it to the other side and been pulled out and he was unfortunately deceased he had been oh burned God. alive and uh, two men get stuck in a giant oven David had collapsed somewhere in the oven and had been crushed by the machinery that went over him the bakery and their management team were all fined for their part in this tragedy about five minutes later ian came over the radio and said hey it's really hot in here and the manager came back and said don't worry it's supposed to be a little warm in there but it's nothing that can hurt you and then a couple of seconds later ian comes back over the radio and says no it's really hot in here it is unbearably hot in here and so one of the managers ran over and checked the temperature gauge which unbelievably 
no one had done to that point, and the temperature at the center of the oven was read. There is this tiny little stream that winds its way through a forest in Yorkshire, England, called the Bolton Strip. It's not very wide, you can jump over it, it doesn't appear to be very deep, but that's all an illusion. There are signs up all over the place that say, do not go near the Bolton Strip, it kills people. Because just beneath the surface is a natural booby trap that has a 100% mortality rate. In 1998, oh Barry and Lynn were were walking along the Bolton Strid on their second day of their honeymoon, and all of a sudden a torrential downpour starts just raining down on them, and Lynn slips and falls oh into the Strid. Barry, being oh a good shit. husband, runs over to try to save her, and he too falls into oh the Strid. A man named Desmond Thomas was on the other side of the Strid, and he watched Barry's face as he was looking at him as if he was going to stay afloat at the top, Desmond said it looked like someone came up and grabbed his leg and yanked him under the water. And he didn't oh see him again. Lynn's body was found six days later in West Yorkshire, and Barry's body was found over a month later, ten miles downstream. Oh there is this shit. tiny little stream that winds its way through a forest in Yorkshire, England called the Bolton Strid. It's not very wide, you could jump over it. It doesn't appear to be very deep, but that's all an illusion. There are signs up all over the place that say do not go near the Bolton Strid. It kills people. Because just beneath the surface is a natural booby trap that has a 100% mortality rate. In 1998, Barry and Lynn call it the most remote island in the world is Buffet Island. It is an uninhabited 19 square mile chunk of rock and ice situated in the South Atlantic. If you were looking on a map and drew a 1,000 mile radius around Bouvet Island, there would be nothing else in it. There's no land, there is nothing. You can't just take a ship there or a boat there because all around the edges of this island are these jagged ice cliffs and then the water is treacherous down near the edge of these cliffs. If you were to fall in, you'd get sucked up and probably underneath some of these rocks and then you're done for. Anyone who's stepped foot on Bouvet Island has taken a helicopter and flown the long, sketchy flight hoping you don't hit a storm because you can't land anywhere, you're in the middle of nowhere with no land, all the way to Bouvet Island. And then anyone that's been on Bouvet Island only stays for like a few minutes because they're so worried about a storm rolling in. And the weather at Bouvet Island is famously bad and storms are constantly rolling in. Oh, and Bouvet Island is an active volcano. <laughs> the most remote island in the world is Bouvet Island. It is an uninhabited 19 square mile chunk of rock and ice situated in the South Atlantic. If you were looking on a map and drew a 1,000 mile radius around Bouvet Island, there would be nothing else in it. There's no. And so the theory goes Earhart and Noonan are making their way to Howland Island. They get off track somehow and they wind up crash landing. 350 miles away on Niku Mororo Island on one of the reefs. Noonan probably dies on impact, and Earhart, who's badly wounded and probably bleeding, she gets onto the island and she makes her way up to that area where that campfire was found. And for some amount of time, Earhart is able to survive off of whatever she had on her in those glass bottles, but in her weakened state and bleeding, at some point she probably attracted the coconut crabs who one night came out and swarmed her ripped her to pieces, and ate her. And so the theory goes, Earhart and Noonan are making their way to Howland Island, they get off track somehow, and they wind up crash landing 350 miles away on Niku Mororo Island on one of the reefs. Noonan probably dies on impact, and Earhart, who's badly wounded and probably bleeding, she gets onto the island, and she makes her way up to that area where that campfire was found. And for some amount of time, Earhart is able to survive off of whatever she had on her in those glass bottles, but in her weakened state and bleeding, at some point she probably attracted the coconut crabs who one night came out and swarmed her, 
ripped her to pieces and ate her. And so the theory goes, while this system is highly efficient, it does not change the fact that saturation diving is extremely dangerous and terrifying. The sun doesn't reach below 700 feet, so most of the time these divers are in complete and total darkness. And it's unbelievably cold down there. And so their suits have hot water pumped into them through a tether that's connected to the dive bell. But if that were to fail, hypothermia would kick in almost immediately. They have flashlights, but the water is so full of sediment around the areas that they work that shining the light is basically like shining it into fog. You can't really see very far besides right in front of your face. Sat divers also report that sometimes the water around them will suddenly move violently and they'll look around, but their crummy light and lack of visibility means they can't see what it was, but they know it's a large animal that's checking them out. Other times, these fairly large fish will swim right up to them and come right under their light. It's almost like they're being affectionate with the diver, but they're not being affectionate. They're trying to hide behind the sat diver from some large predator that's out there watching. While this system is highly efficient, it does not change the fact that saturation diving is extremely dangerous and terrifying. The sun doesn't reach below 700 feet, so most of the time these divers are in complete and total darkness, and it's saturation unbelievably cold diving. down there. And so the comment the idea of a giant fish or predator being beside the diver because he is scared of the dark and other more giant predator is an amazing idea for a cartoon gets back over to the smoking area and he's thinking you know maybe i should just skip class and go home because maybe eric has some prank that he's got planned that he's protecting me from and as he's sitting there smoking a cigarette thinking about whether or not he's going to stay or go he hears noises coming from the high school that he immediately assumes are fireworks and so in his mind he's like oh looks like he was planning a senior prank he's lighting fireworks inside of the school but then the sounds got faster and louder and he turned to look at the school and he heard people screaming and he knew those weren't fireworks, those were gunshots. Twelve students from Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado had been killed along with one of their teachers, as well as Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the two shooters. This senior class picture was taken two weeks before the Columbine shooting, and you can clearly see Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold pointing finger guns at the camera. At the time this picture was taken, they both knew what they were going to do to the students in that picture because they had been planning this attack for over a year. Brown gets back over to the smoking area, and he's thinking, you know, maybe I should just skip class and go home. Alan owed $3,000 to a particular loan shark. Instead of asking his parents for money, which for him would have been too embarrassing, he decides the best course of action is to kill his entire family. And so oh he strolls God. into his home, and he shoots his mom dead, he shoots his sister dead, and then he waits for his dad to come home, and he shoots him dead. Because his big plan is with his whole family gone, he's going to become the sole heir to the mm -hmm. family's estate. And that will be enough money to not only pay off this $3,000 debt, but have a little leftover so he can go on vacation to Paris again. When police went out and got Alan and Jeez. brought him back to the station to chat with him and tell him what happened, his sad reaction to his whole family now being deceased was apparently so insincere 
that officers almost immediately assumed that he was probably the guy that did it. Allen would confess, and the prosecutor wanted to push for the death penalty. This is the picture that Allen uploaded to his Instagram account just hours after killing his entire family. They're all lying on the ground in his house at the time this picture is being taken. Allen owed $3,000 to a particular loan shark. Instead of asking his parents for money, which for him would have been too embarrassing, he decides the best course of action is to kill. And so she calls one of her roommates, and Kayla angrily tells them, hey, come out into the living room and tell your friend to knock it off. He's totally harassing me. And her roommate was confused. She's trying to make sense of what Kayla's saying, and she says, Kayla, what are you talking about? What friend are you talking about? Kayla says, the guy sleeping on the couch. The guy in our living room sleeping on the couch. And her roommate said... Kayla, we didn't have anybody over last night. Somebody out there? You need to call the police. Kayla's adrenaline surged, and she very calmly told her roommate, lock your door immediately. She noticed the jiggling of her doorknob and the scratching, and it all stopped. And Kayla's wondering, you know, where did this guy go? And then after a couple of seconds, she heard extremely loud banging coming from across the house where her two roommates shared a room. And it was the sound of this guy trying to smash down their door. And so Kayla's screaming, her roommates are screaming, Kayla manages to dial up 911, and before long there are sirens outside, and Kayla hears the sound of this guy run across the house, and she hears the sliding door open and shut. So she calls one of her roommates, and Kayla angrily tells them, hey, come out into the living room and tell your friend to knock it off. He's totally harassing me. And her roommate was confused. She's trying to make sense of what Kayla's saying, and she says, Kayla, what are you talking about? What friend are you talking about? Kayla says, the guy sleeping on the couch, the guy in our living room sleeping on the couch. And her roommate said, Kayla, we didn't have anybody over last night. Somebody out there? You need to call the police. <laughs> Kayla's adrenaline. So they get out on the street and they start walking home. And at some point, Michael gets the impression that Sean is hitting on his girlfriend. It's unclear what gave him this impression. But apparently, he really believed it. Because as soon as he saw it, he launched an attack on Sean and started just beating him up in the middle of the street. Then, with the whole neighborhood watching, the big guy, Michael, picked up the little guy, Sean, and shoved him. Right, welcome back to Christopher Governator's show, and we are watching Mr. Balin's YouTube shorts, Scary Tales. Scary but true. Okay, I actually heard about this one. The trucker got busted, he was a serial killer. serial killer and um, um, he got caught red-handed with a chick tied up and bound when the cops came so he said oh she wanted that <laughs> and but the cop to his credit finally a fucking cop he does his job well all right great he, he, arrested the motherfucker. So thank you, cops, when you do the right fucking thing. That's real nice. We like that. At 11.10 p.m. that night, the bow of the Stockholm plow... This... It said this reporter had to 
cover his daughter's story. Directly inside of the Andrea Doria, penetrating over 40 feet inside the ship before coming back out again. And the news correspondent that they chose to cover this story was a man named Edward Morgan. And unbeknownst to his co-workers, his 14-year-old daughter, Linda Morgan, was on board the Andrea Doria. But after he got off the air, another story began to develop about the crash. Apparently, a girl who was asleep in one of the rooms on the Andrea Doria that experienced a direct hit from the Stockholm woke up after the crash and didn't know where she was. And she began yelling out for her mother. Meanwhile, a man on board the Stockholm heard the girl's cries and he ran towards the front of the Stockholm, which is where he heard these cries coming from. And when he got up there, he couldn't believe what he would see. Perched on the destroyed bow of the Stockholm was a bed. And on that bed was a relatively unhurt 14-year-old girl named Linda Moore. At 11.10 p.m. that night, the bow of the Stockholm plowed directly into the side of the Andrea Doria, penetrating over 40 feet inside the ship before coming back out again. And the news correspondent that they chose to cover this story was a man named Edward Morgan. And unbeknownst to his co-workers, his 14-year-old daughter, Linda Morgan, was on board the Andrea Doria. But after he got off the air, another story began to develop about the crash. Apparently, a girl who was asleep in one of the rooms on the Andrea Doria that experienced a direct hit from the Stockholm woke up after the crash and didn't know where she was. And she began yelling out for her mother. Meanwhile, a man on board the Stockholm heard the girl's cries and he ran towards the front of the Stockholm, which is where he heard these cries coming from. And when he got up there, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. Perched on the destroyed bow of the Stockholm was a bed. And on that bed was a relatively unhurt 14-year-old girl named Linda Moore. And as she's making this salad, she crushes up the sleeping pills. Grandma has a hidden secret. Mixes the powder with the salad dressing and gives that to Valentina. And Valentina, who's very hungry, eats the whole salad and doesn't notice anything is wrong. Tamara just goes up to her room and goes to bed. A couple hours later, at about two in the morning, she goes back down to the kitchen and she sees Valentina is passed out on the ground. She takes out her hacksaw that she had borrowed from the oh neighbor God. earlier in the day and proceeds to butcher Valentina. And she makes special care as she's cutting her into pieces to remove her lungs and not oh damage them. Because Tamara had a taste for human lungs. It was actually her favorite food. She took Valentina's head and she put it into a big pot of water and began Jesus boiling that God. to eat it. As Valentina's head and lungs are being cooked on the stovetop, Tamara begins making dozens of trips from the apartment down the stairs, out the front door, all the way down to a lake that was near their property where she would dispose of the body parts before coming back and getting more. And as she's making this salad, she crushes up the sleeping pills and mixes the powder with the salad dressing and gives that to Valentina. And Valentina, who's very hungry, eats the whole salad and doesn't notice anything is wrong. Tamara just goes... At 4 a.m. on October 11th, Jose arrived at the Santa Fe Springs Santa plant where he Fe. worked, and his supervisor immediately tasked him with loading a... man cooked alive inside tuna oven. Ooh. ...particular oven. So Jose left and got 12,000 pounds of tuna in cans, and he put them on this dolly, and he wheeled it over to the oven. He walked over and opened up the oven door, and he looked inside, and he saw there was a loose chain in the back. And so even though he knew he wasn't supposed to go inside of the oven for obvious reasons, he knew he could fix that chain in just a couple of minutes. And so he decided he would just go in there and get it done. A couple of hours later, a supervisor asked the other workers if they had seen Jose, and no one had. 
So they searched the inside of the plant. He was nowhere to be seen. His workstation at that oven had been cleaned up. And so they searched the building one more time. And then finally, one of the workers said, the only place we haven't looked is inside the oven he was last seen loading. When they finally opened up the door, they found Jose pressed up against the inside of the door, trying to get out. He had been cooked alive. Oh At 4 a.m. on October 11th, Jose arrived at the Santa Fe Springs plant where he worked, and a oh. supervisor immediately tasked him with loading a particular oven. So Jose left and got 12,000 pounds of tuna in cans, and he put them on this dolly, and he wheeled it over to the oven. He walked over and opened up the oven door, and he looked inside, and he saw there was a loose... They go to the front desk, they say, show us the security footage. They show them the footage, but it's just the exits of the hotel. And they see Kanika going inside, but they don't see anybody leaving. And I guess that was enough for the police and the hotel. And they said, hey, we did our job. Police would go back, though, that night at 10 p.m., so 17 hours after Kanika has gone missing. And they start sifting through other footage beyond just the exits. And they discover Kanika stumbling through the hotel at 3.20 in the morning. She leaves the lobby and makes her way downstairs to the basement. She walks down the hall and can barely stand, and she goes into the kitchen. And then when she's in the kitchen, she kind of stumbles through the kitchen and then vanishes out of sight. And so at 12.48 a.m. on Sunday now, this is almost 24 hours after she's gone missing, they discover Kanika. She had stumbled into a walk-in freezer that was left oh open, God. and then once inside, she had accidentally shut the door. But she was too drunk to open it up again, and she froze to death. Go to the front desk, oh. they say, show us the security footage. They show them the footage, but it's just the exits of the oh hotel. And they see Kanika going inside, but they don't That's see anybody leaving. And I guess that was enough for the police and the hotel. Oh. They said, hey, we did our job. Dr. Wong and John decide to go down separate trails. John goes down his trail, and Dr. Wong will go down her trail, and she doesn't show up at the bottom. John's down at the bottom. He's waiting for her. He starts making his way over and looking up the trail. He can't see anything. There's no indication that someone's been hurt. Ski patrol goes up and they're looking for tracks coming off of the trail, but there's no tracks anywhere of somebody leaving the trail. So the ski patrol gets in touch with the sheriff's office who come out and launch an absolutely massive search. But by the end of the day, there was no sign of Dr. Wong. And even more strangely, they had searched all 75 trails on Bear Valley Ski Resort, and there was not one indication that someone had skied off of any of the trails or even walked off any of the trails. Four months after she went missing, her remains and ski equipment were found about a half mile south of the ski resort in this deep ravine, heavily forested, well off any marked trail. So how did she end up in this impossible area, and why weren't there any tracks leaving the mountain? Dr. Wong and John decide to go down separate trails. John goes down his trail, and Dr. Wong will go down her trail, and he got into the venue, he got on stage, his band was getting ready, thousands of people were coming into the audience, and before the show started, somebody handed him a note. And so Chilino takes the note, he's smiling, he's kind of looking around at the crowd, then he looks down at the note and he reads it, and right away his expression completely changes. He looks distressed, he rubs his brow, he frowns, he kind of looks up at the crowd like he's looking for someone, and then all of a sudden he just snaps out of it, takes the note, puts it in his pocket, picks up the microphone, and proceeds to give one of his best live performances to date. After the concert was over, Chilino made a special effort to say bye to everybody in his band. And he said bye to some people in the crowd. And then finally, after this kind of long, drawn-out goodbye, he walked out the back door. Shortly after, he was kidnapped, tied up, and then shot in the back of the head, execution style. It would turn out that note he received on stage was from his killers, who we don't know exactly who they are still to this day. But the note said, after this performance, we're going to kill you. 
he got into the venue, he got on stage, his band was getting ready, thousands of people were coming into the audience, and before the show started, somebody handed him a note. And so Cellino takes the note, he's smiling, he's kind of looking around at the crowd, then he looks down at the note and he reads it, and right away his expression completely changes. He looks distressed, he rubs his brow, he frowns, he kind of looks up at the crowd like he's looking for someone, and then all of a sudden he just snaps out of it, takes the note, puts it in his pocket, picks up the microphone, and proceeds to give one of his best live performances to date. After the concert was over, Cellino made a special effort to say bye to everybody in his band, and he said bye to some people in the crowd, and then finally, after this kind of long, drawn-out goodbye, he walked out the back door. Shortly after, he was kidnapped, tied up, and then shot in the back of the head, execution style. Yeah. It would turn out that note he received on stage was from his killers, who we don't know exactly who they are still to this day, but the note said, after this performance, we're going to kill you. He got into the venue, he got on stage, his band was getting ready, thousands of people were coming into the audience, and before the show started, somebody handed him a note. And so mm -hmm. Cellino, just based on the way he presented to them, being pale in the face and hunched over and very sick looking, they assumed this must be something very serious. That day, they brought Mr. Sidorkin in for an examination, and after talking to him and hearing about all of his symptoms and just looking at him, the assumption was he probably has a tumor in his lungs. And so they sent him in for an x-ray, and afterwards, the radiologist looked at the x-ray and confirmed that, yep, there is a mass growing inside of your lungs. They told him that they would like to do a biopsy where they remove a small piece of the tissue and test it to see if it's cancerous or not. And so Mr. Sidorkin is terrified, but he says, okay, he schedules his surgery. He goes in a couple days later and the surgeon pulls out a piece of his lung tissue. He looks down at the tissue, the surgeon does, and he realizes there is something hidden inside of the tissue as if the tissue was like an envelope holding something inside of it. And so he opened it up and there, growing on the side of his lung, was a small fir tree. It was five <laughs> centimeters long, it was green, it looked very lively, it was just a thriving little tree. Based on the way he presented to them, being pale in the face and hunched over and very sick looking, they assumed this must be something very serious. That day, they brought Mr. Sidorkin in for an examination, and after talking to him and hearing about all of the symptoms and just looking at him, the assumption was... Sent him in for an x-ray, and afterwards, the radiologist looked at the x-ray and confirmed that, yep, there is a mass growing inside of your lungs. They told him that they would like to do a biopsy, where they remove a small piece of the tissue and test it to see, see if comment. it... Turns out he was trying to get oxygen directly from the source. This reminds me of what my parents told me when I was a kid, that if you ate a watermelon seed, it would grow inside your stomach. Yeah, true of... My dad would be so angry knowing this dude can grow a whole plant as long as he can't keep the plant alive for a week. <laughs> Every person who is watching this video right now has probably eight seeds in their life. Yo, do you smoke weed? No, just for... Oh, wow, our bodies are magnificent. A little tree growing inside this man's long mind blown. Keep them coming, Mr. Ballin. <laughs> Me, doesn't need vegetables. Parents, what are they going to do? Grow trees inside you? <laughs> Hi, puppy.
it's cancerous or not. And so Mr. Jerome and his wife are totally stumped, and so they decide, let's just put a security camera up in the attic, and let's see what's moving around up there. So that day, Jerome goes out, he gets a little security camera, he comes home, he installs it in his attic, and then he, his wife, and his daughter go to bed. That night, Jerome doesn't wake up to any sounds in the ceiling. When he goes to check the footage the next morning, he's not expecting to see anything. He is shocked at what he discovers. After Jerome, his wife, and his young daughter have already fallen asleep, you see on camera as the partition that separates Jerome's attic from his neighbor's attic slides open. And in crawls, who else but Jerome's neighbor? He's carrying a drill and a plank of wood, and he crawls very quietly over Jerome's side of the apartment. He lays the plank down over some beams, and he gets himself positioned over it. And then he uses his drill to drill a hole right into Jerome's ceiling, and it would happen to be directly above his daughter's crib. And then he'd lay there on the plank of wood and stare through the hole at Jerome's daughter for 30 minutes. Jerome and his wife are totally stumped, and so they decide, let's just put a security camera up in the attic, and let's see what's moving around up there. So that day, Jerome goes out, he gets a little security camera, he he normally would just eat the apples that were right outside of his house, but he had always been tantalized by the sugar apple trees that were inside of the fenced-off section of Komodo Island. This section was, of course, teeming with Komodo dragons, and so as a result, the locals basically fenced it off. But Mohammed had always wanted those sugar apples. He'd grown up here. He never got to have one. And so this day, for whatever reason, he decided, today's the day I'm going to get one. And so after looking around and feeling like the coast was clear, he hopped the fence and he ran out to the sugar apple tree. He's reaching out and extending his arm just far enough. He wants to get one more apple and he loses his footing and he falls to the ground. These two massive creatures are running and grunting at full speed towards Muhammad. Muhammad, when he fell, he had cut himself. And they smelled his blood and they charged over. The authorities were able to get out there pretty quickly and they were able to get the Komodo dragons off before they actually consumed him, but he was already dead. He normally would just eat the apples that were right outside of his house, but he had always been tantalized. Ukrainian containment crews finally broke into the steam corridor that was located underneath the molten remains of reactor number four. And as soon as they stepped in, their radiation readers spiked all the way to the top. And so they know that whatever's at the other end of this L-shaped hallway is something they did not want to get close to. And so they put a camera on a chair with wheels and they pushed it down the hall to where it finally broke that corner and had a clear line of sight to the other end. They were able to take a picture of one of the single most dangerous things in the entire world. It was a molten pile of nuclear fuel and melted metal and sand and concrete. It was and still is emitting the equivalent level of radiation of four and a half million chest x-rays every hour. Today, if you were to stand in front of the elephant's foot without proper equipment for 30 seconds, your cells would start to hemorrhage and you would become viciously ill and you could even die. At two minutes of exposure, you're definitely going to die. Ukrainian containment crews finally broke into the steam corridor that was located on the next day Luana was found dead in her apartment when the authorities arrived at her house and began looking at the scene. It did not look like she had died as a result of those injuries. It looked more like some sort of ritual suicide. She was laying on this sofa with her arms over her chest. Next to the sofa was an altar that was adorned with strange occult symbols and ritual herbs and effigies. And on the altar was this goblet with deep, dark red stains on the inside. When they looked at Loana, even though she was fully dressed, underneath her sleeves were all these cuts on her arms and there were cuts on her legs as well. After her autopsy, the medical examiner said she had died from a combination of 
blood loss and internal shock from ingesting massive quantities of blood that triggered cardiac arrest. Luana had been draining her own blood into the sacramental goblet, drinking it, and then doing it over and over again until she died. Next day, Luana was found dead in her apartment. When the authorities arrived at her house and began looking at the scene, it did not look like she had died as a result of those injuries. It looked more like some sort of ritual suicide. She was laying on this sofa with her arms over her chest. Next to the British soldier, Henry Tandy, found himself stationed inside of a trench in northern France. After a long day of fighting, Henry was propped up on the edge of his trench, looking out towards the German line. And at some point, Henry noticed a figure way off in the distance walking towards him. Henry instinctively raised his rifle, but he didn't pull the trigger. He wanted to make sure who he was shooting was his enemy. And so Henry's looking down his gun, staring at the sky, waiting to figure out who he is. And after a few seconds, out of the mist walks a badly wounded German soldier, so it is his enemy, but he wasn't carrying a weapon, and he didn't appear to understand he was walking directly into Henry's sights. Now, Henry had shot many men during the war so far, but he just could not bring himself to shoot this unarmed, wounded German who just looked kind of pathetic, and then he lowered his gun. And then Henry and this German man just stared at each other for a while, until the German man just nodded his thanks, turned around, and wandered back into the mist out of sight. The man Henry had just saved was Adolf Hitler. British soldier Henry Tandy found himself stationed inside of a trench in northern France. After a long day of fighting, Henry was propped up on the edge of his trench, looking out towards the German line. And at some point, Henry noticed a figure. The boss would respond and say, hey, can you go on there tonight and take pictures of all the different workstations so we know how many people that we need to place in different segments of this big ship. So the foreman walks onto the ship and proceeds to take hundreds of pictures. So all night, he's going room to room taking all these pictures, and at some point, he realizes he's photographed everything he needs to so he leaves he goes back to his office he uploads the pictures and he sends them to his boss his boss wrote back almost immediately and just said who's the guy with the axe and he sees that his boss is actually attached the picture he is referring to here is this guy clearly clutching an axe in a hallway that he was just in and even creepier is the foreman is looking at where this picture was taken and it was relatively early on in his photo shoot And he had walked past the exact area where this guy is poking his head out of, which means the whole time he was down there, this guy with an axe was there with him. The boss would respond and say, hey, can you go on there tonight and take pictures of all the different workstations so we know how many people that we need to place in different segments of this big ship. So the foreman walks onto the ship and proceeds to take hundreds of pictures. So all night he's going room to room taking all these pictures. And at some point he realizes he's photographed everything he needs to. So he leaves, he goes back to his office, he uploads the pictures and he sends them to his boss. His boss wrote back almost immediately and just said, Who's the guy with the axe? And he sees that his boss is actually attached, the picture he is referring to. Here is this guy clearly clutching an axe in a hallway that he was just in. And even creepier is the foreman is looking at where this picture was taken, and it was relatively early on in his photo shoot. And he had walked past the exact... And so as she's standing there and she's watching the dump truck back up right in front of her, the bulldozer driver right behind her turns on the machine and immediately lurches forward now the driver of this bulldozer did not see the woman and so he goes right into her and he knocks her backwards she falls into the bucket and the driver drives the bucket directly into a pile of sand and scoops up thousands of pounds of sand that come down directly on this woman so now she's completely buried alive and being crushed by all the sand and the driver completely oblivious lifts the bucket up 
turns around and drives across the yard and dumps the sand and the woman into a vibrating sand crusher. The vibrating sand crusher is exactly what it sounds like. It pulverizes bits of rock and stone and grinds them down into a very fine powder. And they all run over, but when they realize what's happened, that someone has fallen into the sand crusher, they all just stop and stand there because they know there's nothing they can do. So as she's standing there and she's watching the dump truck back up right in front of her, the bulldozer driver right behind her turns on the machine and immediately lurches forward. Now, the driver of this bulldozer did not see the woman, and so he goes right into her, and then he developed a wicked cough that got so bad over a couple of days that he could barely speak. His doctor referred him to a respiratory clinic. There, they did an x-ray of his chest, and they discovered a suspicious shadow in the lower right section of his lung. A few days later, Paul went back in for this follow-up procedure, and the doctor, using this longer, more powerful probe, was able to go down and actually dislodge this orange thing from inside of his lungs. And then finally, the pinchers came out of Paul's mouth, revealing what it was holding on to, and nobody could believe what they were looking at. What it was holding on to was a small plastic orange traffic cone from a child's play toy set. And as soon as Paul saw it, a memory came rushing back to him, and he told the doctors when he was seven years old, he swallowed, or so he thought, a cone that looked an awful lot like this one. Except he hadn't swallowed it, he had inhaled it. And then somehow, for 40 plus years, he'd had no symptoms related to it until now when he developed that cough. And he developed a wicked cough that got so bad over a couple of days that he could... As they made their way towards the exit of this car park, there was... Then he developed a wicked cough. he developed a wicked cough that as they made their way towards the exit of this car park there was another car ahead of them that rolled over that section of pavement that was steaming and they watched as it rolled over and drove off and so vladimir and igor they drove over that section of pavement and the ground collapsed under them the burst hot water pipe had injected thousands of gallons of water into the soil right under the pavement and so it caused a sinkhole but not just any sinkhole a sinkhole that was slowly filling with boiling water. When the ground collapsed under Igor's car, it flipped the car forward and it landed just perfectly to where the doors could not open. They would hit the sides of the sinkhole. The men managed to get their seatbelts off and flip themselves around and began kicking on the windshield and yelling out for help. At this point, onlookers had made it to the edge of the sinkhole and when they looked down inside, they realized there was nothing anyone could do. So they watched in horror as Vladimir and Igor desperately tried to escape, but the scalding water could continued to fill the hole until it began leaking into the cabin of the vehicle, at which point the men went quiet. As they made their way towards the exit of this car park, oh, there was another car. And so while his fellow sheep were marching the unbelievable story of Shrek the sheep down to get their wool cut, Shrek secretly walked to the back of the pen, snuck out the back gate, and ran away up over the hillside without anybody noticing. And when he was finally out of sight of the farm, he just kept on running until he found this cave high up on this mountainside that he could hide inside of. At first, the farmer didn't even realize Shrek was missing. He had many sheep to take care of, and so it was easy to lose track. But eventually, he did catch on, and he went out looking for Shrek, but he couldn't find him. And so eventually, he had to just accept that Shrek was gone. Six years later, in 2004, this farmer was out walking around the hillside a couple miles away from his farm when something moved in the corner of his eye. 
And so he turned and looked uphill, and there, perched on a rock, standing proudly, was the most absurd-looking sheep he had ever seen. It was Shrek, and he looked like an enormous brown cotton ball. And so while his fellow sheep were marching down to get their wool cut, Shrek secretly walked to the back of the pen, snuck out the back gate, and ran away up over the hillside without anybody noticing. And when he was finally out of sight of the farm, he just kept on running until he found this cave high up on this mountain. Once they got up to their jumping altitude, which was 10,500 feet, he Ivan turned on his mistake. camera. Ivan, who's going to be the first one out, makes his way to the edge. He turns himself upside down, so he's sitting basically with his back outside of the plane. He makes sure the instructor and student are right on top of him, ready to jump out right afterwards. Once they're ready, Ivan falls out backwards and continues to film. You see the instructor and student jump out right afterwards. Ivan continues to film them as they go down. They're in free fall for a few seconds. And then you see the instructor and student pull their parachutes, at which time Ivan reaches back to pull his own, but he can't find it. And then he realizes oh what's happened. That parachute he grabbed before he loaded up in the plane was not a parachute. He grabbed his heavy backpack that had that big VHS deck in it, and when he put it on, he mistook it for the parachute. And so now, falling at terminal velocity with no way to stop himself, he begins yelling out, Oh no! Oh God, no! And after a few agonizing seconds, you see the ground getting closer and closer and closer, and then it cuts out. Once they got up to their jumping altitude, which was 10,500 feet, Ivan turned on his camera. Ivan, who's going to be the first one out, makes his way to the edge. He turns himself upside down, so he's sitting basically with his back outside. A 27-year-old Texas man named George Pickering III suffered a massive stroke. He was immediately admitted to a hospital where he was put on life support. It would turn out George was brain dead, and they advised the family that realistically they should consider pulling George off of life support because it wasn't going to do him any good. George's father kind of snapped. He ran out of the room, he ran out of the hospital, he went out to his car and he got his gun and then ran back into the hospital, back into his son's room and aimed the gun at the doctors and ordered them to stop what they were doing and leave the room immediately. George's father had reached down and grabbed his son's hand and his son squeezed his hand back. And as soon as his father felt that, he dropped the gun and he surrendered peacefully to the SWAT team and then the SWAT team put George's father on the ground and as he's being detained, George's father is yelling for the doctors to come in the room my son is okay george was okay he was moving his hand his eyes were open he was making good eye contact and before long he made a totally full a 27 year old texas man named yeah. george pickering the third suffered a massive stroke he was immediately Shut admitted up, to a hospital where he was put on life support it would turn out george was brain dead and they advised the family that realistically they should they consider pulling george dead. off of life support because it wasn't going to do him any good george's father kind of snapped he ran out of the room he ran out of the hospital he went out to his car and he got his she was about 20 feet ahead of him when he decided to turn around and take one more look at the beautiful view and he said he was looking at the view for about 40 seconds before he turned back around and barbara was gone and he hadn't heard her call out for help he hadn't heard her fall there was no sound of other people there was no sound of other animals there was no sound of any struggle whatsoever so jim's starting to panic he ran right back up the trail all the way back up to the bear creek overlook hoping that along the way he would see some indication of where she went Went, but again, there was nothing on the trail. Over the next 48 hours, a huge search was launched all around this area for Barbara. It included helicopters and huge search teams and highly trained sniffing dogs, but nothing was found. And so unfortunately, her family had to face the awful reality of getting zero closure. She was just gone and nobody knew what happened. 
And unfortunately, to this day, we still don't know what happened because no trace of Barbara has ever been. She was about 20 feet ahead of him when he decided to turn around and take one more look at the beautiful view. And he said he was looking at the... As he waited, he turned this around to face the sedan. Died in a rest area. And that initially, when he first pulled in the lot, he believed was empty. But now, as he's looking at it, he can clearly see there are two people in the front two seats. And immediately, Mark felt really creeped out by these two guys. I mean, they are in this random rest stop in the middle of the night. They're the only ones there. And this guy is just staring menacingly at Mark. Finally, his wife did come out. He grabbed her by the hand and without any explanation, rushed them back to their car, hopped in, locked the doors, turned it on and began backing out. And as he did, he looked over at the sedan and he saw the guy behind the steering wheel, the middle-aged guy, was looking over at Mark with that same menacing look on his face. It would turn out that middle-aged man sitting in the driver's seat of the sedan staring at Mark was none other than John Allen Muhammad, and the guy next to him, the teenager who was sleeping, was Lee Boyd Malvo. These were the two men that were responsible for the highly coordinated three-week-long attack that left 10 people dead in the Washington, D.C. area. As he waited, he turned around to face the sedan that initially, when he first pulled in the lot, he believed was empty. But now, as he's looking at it, he can clearly see there are two people in the front two seats. And immediately, Mark felt really creeped out by these two guys. I mean, they are in this random rest stop in the middle of the night. They're the only ones there. And this guy is just... One of the more popular questions was, oh, what was my... Bowen faced death in combat. scariest or most difficult experience as a navy seal and that was when i got blown up in afghanistan in 2014. as we're getting ready to leave one of our drones spots a group of people not americans not seals we're expecting to be able to look over this wall and look out across this field and see this group of of men that are that are hiding but when we got down to the end of the alleyway they weren't across the field on that wall they were on this wall, like a foot away from us. Grenades are coming over the wall, there's shooting happening on both sides. The grenade actually came over and hit my shoulder and landed next to me and detonated. And I was just expecting to either die from bleeding or have one of the bad guys come from around the wall and finish me off. I remember just wishing that my wife and I had started a family before I deployed because we actually kind of pushed it off. But my medic was an all-star. He ran over and while I'm laying there, was able to stop the bleed and I was saved. Um, thanks entirely to my team. One of the more popular questions was, what was my scariest or most difficult experience as a Navy SEAL? And that was when I got blown up in Afghanistan in 2014. As we're getting ready to leave, one of our drones spots a group of people, not Americans, not SEALs. We're expecting to be able to look over this wall and look out across this field and see this group of, of men that are that are hiding but when we got down to the end of the alleyway they weren't across the field on that wall they were on this wall like a foot away from us grenades are coming over the wall there's shooting happening on both sides the grenade actually came over and hit my shoulder and landed next to me and detonated and i was just expecting to either die from bleeding or have one of the bad guys come from around the wall and finish me off i remember just wishing that my wife and i had started a family before i deployed because we actually kind of pushed it off but my medic was an all-star he ran over and while i'm laying there was able to stop the bleed and
Mm -hmm. Nice comment. That amazing medic is the reason we are getting this fabulous content right now. Indeed. Holy damn, dude, you got struck by a grenade that was close enough to bounce off your shoulder. I understand why you hear the seriousness in your voice. You know now what matters in life and what doesn't. Not only that, you now inspire millions of people and didn't let it take away your motivation to care about something bigger than yourself. You're a special guy in your favor, and I, and this guy certainly recognizes you. I am the sun. What sweet comments. Um, At 7.40, 85-year-old Buddy Miller was making breakfast in his ranch when he heard two loud explosions. The first one actually rattled his house. When he looked out the window, he saw this massive plume of black smoke on another rancher's land off in the distance. At her home, just up the road, was 66-year-old Martha Wiley, who heard the explosions too. She said the first one reminded her of the sound her 20-gauge shotgun made. When Buddy and the other first responders arrived at the scene, they saw this huge fire at the base of a power line tower, and at first, they couldn't figure out what was actually burning. But upon closer inspection, they saw a wicker basket and they saw bodies. This what? was a hot air balloon accident. It would oh, turn no. out the pilot of that hot air balloon was 49-year-old Skip Nichols, and he had elected to fly that day despite a low cloud cover that had grounded the other hot air balloon companies in the area that morning. Also, Skip was on a mixture of prescription and over-the-counter drugs that impaired his ability to fly the balloon. At 7.40, mm. 85-year-old Buddy Miller was making breakfast in There's his ranch when he heard two loud drugs. explosions. The first one actually rattled his house. When he looked out the window, he saw this massive plume of black smoke on another. If you were to ignore the countless warnings around these hot springs telling you to stay away do not go in the hot springs if you were to ignore those and go in one this is what would happen to you first your body would register that your skin was bathing in waters exceeding 200 degrees fahrenheit this would hurt like nothing you can possibly imagine but it would only hurt as long as your nervous system was able to register pain, which would only be for about one minute or less. At this temperature, your skin would begin to quickly break down and disintegrate, and your blood vessels in your underlying dermis would rupture, causing rapid blood loss. Some underlying skin layers would not break down, but they would lose all of their water and become tough and blackened and your underlying subcutaneous fat would bubble off as well. All in all, this is known as a bubble full off. thickness burn, and it would occur in about one minute in these waters. Your nervous system would enter a state of shock and become irreversibly damaged, which would lead to most, if not all, of your organs to fail if the heat stress has not already done that to you. If you were to ignore the countless warnings around these hot springs telling you to In the winter of 1986, when Oksana was only three years old, in a drunken stupor, no her parents running. forgot about her outside in the cold of winter. Instinctively, she crawled towards the nearest source of warmth, which was the family's kennel, where a whole bunch of dogs were sleeping. And incredibly, once she crawled inside of this kennel, not only did the dogs allow her to sleep there that night, but they kind of embraced her as one of their own. The next day, Oksana did not go back in the house and her parents seemingly did not notice her absence and over the next five years oksana would stay with this family of dogs essentially dogs. living like she was part of their pack 
which meant over those five very formative years from ages three to eight years old, Oksana had almost no interaction with humans. Oksana rapidly learned how to behave like a dog and began only walking on all fours. She would bark instead of try to speak and she would eat raw meat. By the early 90s, Oksana no longer identified as a human. She identified as a dog. In the winter of 1986, when Oksana was only three years old, in a drunken stupor, her parents forgot about her outside in the cold of winter. Instinctively, she crawled towards the nearest source of warmth, which was the family's kennel, where a whole bunch of dogs were sleeping. Mm -hmm. And incredibly, once she crawled inside of this kennel, not only did the dogs allow her to sleep there that night, but they kind of embraced her as one of their own. The next, the engineers installed what's called a spillway in the middle of the the lake. She made the worst mistake of her life. Spillway is like a huge drain. When the water levels in the lake are normal, none of the water will go into this drain. But when water levels reach a certain point, the water, instead of spilling over the side of the dam, will spill into this spillway. On a summer day in 1997, 41-year-old graduate student Emily Schwelich was swimming in the recreational side of Lake Berryessa. She decided she wanted to have a closer look at the spillway, which at the time, because the water levels had risen high enough, water was pouring down into the spillway. But what ended up happening is as she got closer and closer to the edge, the current picked up so dramatically that it began pulling her down into the hole. And so by the time she's over this cement lip, she had already turned around, realizing her mistake, and was trying desperately to swim away from the spillway. But it was too late. Emily had managed to hang on to that edge for 20 minutes. But finally, the water overpowered her, she lost her grip, and she fell backwards down the 200-foot chute to her death. The engineers installed what's called a spillway in the middle of the lake. A spillway is like a huge drain. When the water levels in the lake, Kurt realized if he removed the safety screen, he could easily fit the fill bin underneath. And so he did that, and he told himself that he would just replace the safety screen as soon as he was done. Fast forward a few months to April 19, 2019, and Kurt needed to move some grain from one bin to another. So he fired up the auger that still did not have the safety screen on the outside of it. And as he was walking right near the entrance to the auger, he tripped, and he fell feet first into the opening of the auger and right away his left foot got sucked up into the rotating metal screw Mm. and before he'd even fallen back onto the ground he could tell his left foot had been cut clean off but that wasn't the worst of it because the rest of his leg was still getting pulled into the shaft Mm. Kurt realized he had his pocket knife he pulled it out it was a four inch blade and he realized he could cut his leg off but he had to time it right. And so he watched the rotating screw until he could clearly see a break in his leg, and he timed it so he reached down and cut through his leg as fast as he could right before the rotation of the auger caught up again. Kurt realized if he removed the safety screen, he could easily fit the fill bin underneath. And so he did that, and he told himself that he would just replace the safety screen as soon as he was done. And so finally, Dewey relented, and she told him she was going to see the shaman. A shaman, in simple terms, is someone who uses magic to cure the sick. The driver did think it was odd that this girl was going to see the shaman in the middle of the night and she was being so secretive about it, but after he dropped her off, he hadn't given it much thought until he found out she had died. The police approached the shaman, who was 45-year-old Ahmad Siraji, and they asked him if he had been with Dewey on the night of April 24th. Initially, Siraji said no, he had not been with her, and he had no idea what happened to her. But after police searched his house and found Dewey's belongings inside, Siraji said, okay, I've been lying and I have a confession to make. And he would very nonchalantly tell police that not only had he killed Dewey, 
He'd also killed dozens of other women the same way and buried them in the sugarcane field. And so the police went out to the field and started looking around, and they found all these mounds of dirt all over the place, and under them were women buried up to their neck. And so finally, Dewey relented, and she told him she was going to see the shaman. A shaman, in simple um, terms, is I someone... covered another part of the story that he did um, in another podcast earlier. Uh, I think it's... is it um... I'll be publishing it soon. Um, what I'm doing is I'm publishing, you know, two or three podcasts a day. So I kind of like schedule them in. Usually I have, if it's like January 6th related, then those go, those go immediately posted. If it's something that's kind of not dated, like this, this, this could go in any day. So I usually um, fill up my schedule for the next my podcasting schedule for the next two weeks or so. So, um, and thank you, by the way, for almost 10,000 listeners and followers and subscribers across social media. But yeah, this guy, um, he was told, or he, what, had a dream or something that, um, if he... He wouldn't die or something if he if he drank the saliva of forty women. So instead of just like maybe kissing forty women, he fucking killed forty women, and in these gruesome ways, just brought him out to a sugar cane field and told him to uh, choose a place to dig a hole and get in and let me do it, and then he would. He would kill him uh, with a chain or something, and then when they were dead, he would extract the saliva. Why don't you just fucking ask him for it? Just pay him. Give me, give me five bucks. Give me some saliva. Give me some spit. For my shamanic bullshit. Okay, but yeah, he wasn't a shaman. He just he pretended to be a shaman, which which is pretty gruesome in itself. I mean, like, that's a good cut. That would be a good cover, you know. I would, I would might have fallen for that summer. Like that? I mean, the fuck. Um, I don't know how we get away with it with so many women. That seems odd to me. Who uses magic to cure residents of a town located just south? And so finally, Dewey relented, and she told him she was going to. Story was making sacrifices and his instructions were to murder a number of women and take their saliva. I think it was saliva anyway. I just remember it was something weird 
not the usual blood. Gotta love the thumbnails and the arrow points to nothing. Oh. See the shaman. A shaman, in simple terms, is some residents of a town located Scary just southwest of Pendundu remembered looking up into the sky and seeing the small prop plane falling through the clouds in a near vertical nosedive. Oh. Seconds later, the plane crashed into the ground right in the middle of the neighborhood. Unfortunately, the pilots, the flight attendant, and 17 of the 18 passengers died on impact. And the one passenger that survived was very badly hurt and was left in a coma. The black box, which is a device that records the audio inside the cockpit, was recovered, but unfortunately it was inoperable, so it didn't give them any other clues what? as to what happened. Inoperable. Investigators were stumped. A few days after the crash, the one surviving it. passenger miraculously came out of their coma and remembered... in vivid detail what happened up in the skies right before the crash. There was a hissing crocodile making its way up the aisle. Someone must have smuggled it on. And as passengers realized what was happening, they all panicked and stampeded towards the front of the plane. This sudden shift in weight wow. threw off the plane's center of gravity, causing a nosedive that the pilots could not recover from before oh they God. crashed. Residents of a town located just southwest of Bandundu remembered looking up into the sky mm -hmm. and seeing the small prop plane falling through the clouds in a near-vertical nosedive. Seconds later, the plane crashed into the ground right in the oh middle God. of the neighborhood. So after spending about 15 minutes the looking camera, for the purse, she goes down stairs and she wakes Matt up and says, Hey, I gotta find my purse. I thought I left it upstairs. Apparently I didn't. Can you help me look for it? And he says, Well, are you sure you didn't leave it at the restaurant last night? I mean, if you already looked, it's probably not here. And that's when Jordan remembers that they had recently installed a Nest camera downstairs. And she thought, we can just look at the footage on the Nest camera. And so Jordan opens up her app and she calls Matt over and they go back to the night before right before they left for the restaurant she's got her purse in hand they leave the front door and then several hours go by and they come back in and very clearly jordan has her purse in her hand and as they're about to put the app down she realizes on the nest camera timeline that motion was detected at 3.30 in the morning. After the couple had fallen asleep on the couch with the TV on, a hooded figure emerges from their upstairs hallway and stands at the top of the stairs and just watches the two of them sleep. Before he left, he stole her purse along with a couple of other things from their apartment. So after spending about 15 minutes looking for the purse, she goes downstairs and she wakes Matt up and says, Hey, I gotta find my purse. I thought I left it upstairs. Apparently I didn't. Can you help me look for it? And he says, Well, are you sure you didn't leave it at the restaurant last night? I mean, if you already looked, it's probably not here. And that's when Jordan remembers that they had recently installed a Nest camera downstairs. Before long, Darren found himself stopping right in the so middle of the situation didn't end well. highway behind this huge row of traffic. Apparently there was some significant flooding up ahead on the road and people were hesitant to drive through it. And so he called his brother and he told him that he was stuck on Highway 105 because there was flooding up ahead, there was flooding behind him, he couldn't really go anywhere. And so his brother asked him, you know, what are you going to do? And at some point Darren said, hey, I can actually get out my window, so I'm fine, I'll talk to you later. But after that, nobody heard from Darren. 
And later that afternoon, when Darren didn't make it home, his family got really concerned and they called the police. And so that night, a search was launched to find Darren, but there was no sign oh, of nice. him. But the next morning, they did if discover he was Darren. Black, they would make him wait, make his family wait 24 hours blue pickup truck and it flipped over it was off the side of the highway near a river that had been created by the floodwaters darren was not inside of the vehicle but 24 hours later they did discover his body he had drowned and he had drifted one mile downstream of his truck before long darren found himself stopping right in the middle of the highway behind this huge row of traffic apparently there was some significant flooding up ahead on the road and people were hesitant And so he called his brother and he told him that he was stuck on Highway 105 because there was flooding up ahead, there was flooding behind him, he couldn't really go anywhere. And so his brother asked him, you know, what are you going to do? And at some point Darren said, hey, I can actually get out my window, so I'm fine, I'll talk to you later. But after that, nobody heard from Darren. And later that afternoon, when Darren didn't make it home, his family got really concerned and they called the police. And so that night, a search was launched to find Darren, but there was no sign of him. But the next morning, they did discover Darren's blue pickup truck and it flipped over. It was off the side of the highway near a river that had been created by the floodwaters. Darren was not inside of the vehicle, but 24 hours later, they did discover his body. He had drowned and he had drifted one mile downstream of his truck. Before long, they launched a huge air raid on the island. It was so violent, the Japanese admiral on Wake Island was convinced a full-scale invasion was imminent. And so in his paranoia, he ordered the 98 POWs they had retained on the island to be executed. And so they marched these 98 POWs to the edge of the sea, they blindfolded them, and then they gunned them down. But in the chaos of the air raid and the execution, one of the American POWs somehow managed to escape. After the Japanese had left the area, this POW snuck back down to the execution site, and he carved into the rock a memorial for all 98 of the POWs. So he was including himself in that number, because I'm sure he knew he would eventually be recaptured. And sure enough, this POW was recaptured that day, and he was personally executed by the Japanese admiral. The so-called 98 Rock can still be seen on Wake Island. They launched a huge air raid on the island that was so violent, the Japanese admiral on Wake Island was convinced a full-scale invasion was imminent. And so in his paranoia, he ordered the 98 POWs they had retained on the island to be executed. And so they marched these 98 POWs to the edge of the sea, they blindfolded them, and then they gunned them down. But in the chaos of the next morning when he was going this through all of his luggage, he discovered that he had taken a key by accident from the ship. And this key was to a special closet that he was in charge of as the second officer that contained all of the ship's binoculars. So he felt terrible, but there was nothing he could do. The ship had already left and was on its way to New York. So the best he could do was he would mail the key back to them in New York when they got there. Back on board the ship, when they discovered this key was missing, they did figure out that David must have it because he was the only one who would have had the key. And it's a brand new ship, so nobody else would have had it. But they decided that it wasn't worth turning around to go get this key. They figured their lookouts were skilled enough they could spot any obstructions with their naked eye. Well, five days later, that ship, the Titanic, struck an iceberg and sunk, killing 1,500 people. 
One of the very few survivors was a guy named Fred Fleet. He was one of the lookouts who actually saw the iceberg first, and he would testify at a Senate inquiry that if he had had binoculars, he would have been able to see the iceberg far enough in advance that they could have avoided it. Next morning, when he was going through all of his luggage, he discovered that he had taken a key by accident from the ship. And this key was to a special... And this soldier oh, very reluctantly sorry. walks up to Johan. The next morning, when he was going through... All And this soldier very reluctantly walks up to Johan, hands him the note, and apologizes for the interruption. He takes the note, and he looks at it, and he can see that it's in English. And like the soldier who's brought it to him, Johan could not read English. And so he's looking around the table, he's got this great poker game going, he's having so much fun. He didn't want to step away and have to get a translator and read this note. And so he tells the soldier that, you know what, he'll read it later. Johan would never read that note. And in a couple of hours, Johan would be dead. Johan Rall was a colonel fighting for Great Britain during the American Revolution. That farmer was a British loyalist, and what he saw when he looked out the window at the end of his road was the famous American military general, George Washington, and his ragtag army. That note Johan was handed was a warning that they were on the way. Had he bothered to read it, he and his well-trained Hessians could have very easily crushed Washington and his men, and that would have been the end of the American Revolution, and America would still be a British colony today. And the soldier very reluctantly walks up to Johan and... Procrastination lost him the war. In the note and apologizes for the interruption. He takes the note and he looks at it and he can see that it's in English. And like the soldier who's brought it to him, Johan could not read English. And so he's looking around the table, he's got this great poker mm. game going, he's having so much fun. He didn't want to step away and have to get a yeah, translator and read German. this note. And so he tells the soldier that, you know what, he'll read it later. Johan would never read that note. And in a couple of hours, Johan would be dead. Johan Rall was a colonel fighting for Great Britain during the American Revolution. That farmer was a British loyalist, and what he saw when he looked out the window at the end of his road was the famous American military general, George Washington, and his ragtag army. That note Johan was handed was a warning that they were on the way. Had he bothered to... Johan Rall, he was, he was German or what? The Limpopo River is one of Africa's Why you should never swim in the Limpopo River largest rivers. It serves as a border between Zimbabwe and South Africa, and it also happens to be one of the most dangerous places on Earth. On January 1st, 2010, Falaborwa resident Mariska Beitendog, along with her boyfriend and six of their other friends, had been out all night partying, celebrating the new year. In their inebriated state, they decided they wanted to take an early morning dip in the Limpopo River. So they head over to the river, and while initially they all seemed really eager to get in the waterway, it was only Mariska that was brave enough 
to do it. So Mariska gets in the water and by herself, she swims out on her back about 15 meters away from shore. She turns and waves at the group and smiles before she is violently pulled under the water. There wasn't even time for her to scream. The other nickname for the Limpopo River is Crocodile River. And Mariska, unfortunately, had fell victim to one of its apex predators. The Limpopo River is one of Africa's largest rivers. It serves as a border between Zimbabwe and South Africa, and it also happens to be one of the most dangerous places on Earth. On January, these particular officers that would be doing this push-off had been undercover for some time in the area, and so they had a local drug house they used for these types of operations. Two potential customers came up to the fake drug house, knocked on the door, and the undercover police officers opened up, invited them inside, and then once these customers Customers were inside sitting down, they asked the undercover cops if they could buy some drugs. And as soon as the cops heard this, they whipped out their badges, they drew their guns, and they ordered them on the ground. But these potential customers, they didn't get on the ground. Instead, they whipped out their badges and drew their guns, and they said, no, you get on the ground. Because it would turn out these customers were actually undercover police officers too, but they were from a different and so neither groups had any idea about the other. They all just eventually lowered their guns and then proceeded to beat the living crap out of each other. After the dust no. finally settled and all the haymakers had stopped, the two groups of police realized their mistake and apologized to each other. These particular officers that would be doing this push-off had been undercover for some time in the area, and so they had a local drug house they used for these types of operations. Two potential customers came up to the fake drug house, knocked on the door, and the undercover police officers opened up, invited them inside, and then once these customers were inside sitting down, they asked the undercover cops if they could buy some drugs. And as soon as the cops... <laughs> it says put your hands up no you put your hands up silence silence so do we just beat each other up now i guess so punches captain i have a lead on the drug house case meanwhile another person captain i have a lead on the customers Take police intelligence out of his finest. So trying to talk it out there and said beat each other up and then only try to talk. <laughs> 